You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. We were about to dig into a shrimp dish. I don't even know who made it. Tom took a bite, spit it out, and as I was taking a bite, said, don't eat that. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. For this episode, I sat down with Gail Simmons. Let me start with this. I've known Gail for over 10 years. She's one of the kindest, nicest, well-spoken, smart, funny people that I know. She has an incredible sense of humor, which will come through during this chat. And she uses her voice for good, for social impact purposes, which we talk about during this episode. We sat at the Soho House in Chicago for a sit-down breakfast of sorts. There was about 100 people in the audience all enjoying dishes from Gail's new cookbook, Bringing It Home, which is why she happened to be in Chicago. And we had a great time. Gail's a food writer. She's a television personality on Top Chef, as you probably know, which is in its 15th season right now and rated the number one food show on cable television. And we discuss Top Chef and hear some funny stories. We talk about her family and growing up in Canada. And we play a fun game, which I'll keep PG for now and let you figure out the abbreviation. It's called F. Mary Kill. But we play F. Mary Kill Food Edition. And it's incredible. Please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Gail Simmons. Thank you to everyone at Soho House, the event team and the kitchen team and the restaurant team here. So this was weird how this came about because Soho House called and they're like, Cappy, we need like a really great Canadian Jew to come to Soho House. It's usually how things happen. And I was like, Drake. And they're like, no, someone like better. Like I was like, Gail Simmons. They're like, perfect. So here we are. Drake doesn't have as good cooking skills. He's good at a lot of things. We went to high school, by the way. Same high school. Yeah. I mean, he's like 15 years younger than me. Maybe seven. Thank you again. If you don't know, she has like 55,000 things in her bio. We're going to get to like seven of them today, but I promise they'll be fun and exciting. This is casual. Think of this as your living room. Stand up if you can't hear in the back. Come up front. If someone yells at you for blocking them, don't blame me. And I already warned Gail, I'm going to be cutting her off at some points because she could tell a story like no other, and they're incredible. So I'm going to keep this truck rolling. Gail and I met at Aspen at the Food and Wine Classic 12 years ago before Top Chef was a thought, but it was actually a volunteer after party that we met at in Aspen in 2005 or so. So here's the thing. I'm getting right into it. I've interviewed some really big chefs. I'm a host of a podcast called Beyond the Plate, where I interview chefs, like some of the world's best chefs, about their journey into the industry and their social impact and how they get back to their community. I do these all in person. Gail's here in Chicago. I've interviewed Alice Waters, Eric Repair, Rachel Ray, Andrew Zimmern. And there's a reason why I'm so excited to be here with Gail. It's because you're a great human. You're talented and you're smart and you're incredible at what you do. So I'm going to start off with, with an interesting question for you. Who is Gail Simmons? Still figuring that out. Thank you, Kathy. And thanks, everyone, by the way, for being here this morning. I did not even pay him to say that. Well, I don't know. I, I'm, st- I, I, I'm a work in progress, let's say. Um, I think that my favorite thing about me and also the most terrifying thing about me is that I've never had much of a plan. I 
set out about 20 years ago to find something fun to do in the world of food because I loved to eat and cook and never have imagined, could have ever imagined that I'd end up here at this moment. And that I think has been the best part of the journey. I started cooking at a young age. My mother was a cooking teacher and a food writer. So I had no choice when you're 21 and you tell your mother that you want to work in the food industry and all her friends are like, oh, you're just like your mother. And you literally cry and run out of the room because you don't want to be, that's the last thing you want to be when you're 21 years old. But 20 years later, I'm pretty psyched that I chose the same path as her and did it in my own way. I have cooked professionally. I have worked in the restaurant and event and PR side of the restaurant industry. Um, I went to culinary school and about 13 years ago, I found myself at Food Wine Magazine running one of the biggest food festivals in the country. And that's where I got to meet Cappy, as he mentioned. Uh, We were both working. I was directing the festival from the New York office. He was on the operations team. And thankfully, the Food Wine Classic in Aspen is really one of the most amazing festivals, um, I think, I'm a little biased, of its kind. But it's really where I forged so many extraordinary friendships. And the same year that I took on the directorship of the classic, Bravo came to Food Wine Magazine and asked if they had an editor who could screen test for a television show they were thinking of making that was this crazy idea about a competition of real professional chefs. And Food Wine sent me to an interview. I didn't even know what a screen test was. I was very concerned about explaining to my mother that I was going to be on reality television. And I've been doing it ever since. That was 12 years ago. So I'm still figuring it out. But my, you know, the the biggest discovery of who Gail Simmons is, I guess, is that I'm a eater, a writer, a traveler, and I'm a cook. Awesome. So 15 seasons later of Top Chef, you're probably one of the most popular judges when it comes to food competition shows. Actually, from when we started this interview till now, Food Network just launched 17 new competition true. shows. That's true. All starring um, Guy Fieri. Yeah. <laughs> so how are you with being judged? You know, I've gotten better at it over the years. The one sort of the irony about being a judge on television is that you're constantly being judged because most people are like, who the hell are you to judge anyone? Right. So what makes you the expert? That's a good question. You know... I take what I do very seriously. I think that's the beauty of Top Chef and what has differentiated us as a competition show, why we've had the longevity that we've had, is that we, we have a real conversation every day about food. And that doesn't mean it's serious, boring, but it's serious in terms of respecting the talent that we bring to the show. These are all exemplary professionals. This is not a show about people who want to be chefs. This is not a show about kids who are up-and-coming chefs. It's about professionals at the highest position in their careers who are really on the brink of doing the most extraordinary things. And so these are the kind of people who are doing this every day regardless. And we respect that because they work extraordinarily hard. They cook in ways and come up with things that in my wildest dreams I never could. So I think that's what it's about. Yeah. Is there anyone that walked into the room or up to the judge's table that that you like actually judged before um, judging their food. And what do you like, mean? Well, someone walked in, you're like, who the hell is this oh, person? Yeah. But then you were dead wrong. I mean, every, every time we start a new season and those 15 chefs walk into the room, our reaction is always, this is like the, it's like a room of circus performers. I mean, they're like the most unruly group of hooligans you can imagine. And that's sort of what's great about them too, is that, and I, I have to give 
some a shout out to our casting department. We think about this a lot too. When we get them, when, when they're delivered to us, there's 15 of them called from 2,000 applications. And the process of, of hulling it down to those 15 people is actually the work of an amazing team of people who are incredibly rigorous at selecting people that have a lot of skills, not just can cook. So they're all executive sous chefs, chef de cuisines. Most of them at this stage run their own restaurants or are the head of exceptional restaurants already. But they can't just be good cooks because good cooks, watching just good cooks just cook is incredibly boring. They need to be entertainers. This is television after all. So finding people who can talk and cook at the same time, who can be storytellers, who have a distinct point of view, who are diverse not only in gender and nationality and you know come from different ethnicities and have different narratives is a really big puzzle. And every year I'm amazed at how great they are. So yes, I judge them a little when they first walk into the room. But the good thing about the way we run the show is that they are never judged on what they did yesterday or what they could do tomorrow. They're judged only on the dish they put before us every day. So we get to know them only through their food. We have no other contact with them until the show's done. Right. So I wrote down, have you ever physically spit out food on TC, meaning Top Chef? But then I read it to myself last night. I was like, have you ever physically spit out food on Tom Colicchio? Oh, yeah. Tom, we joke about the Tom Colicchio Top Chef. It's like he is the mastermind of it all. It's no accident. For his 50th birthday, I got him a pair of sneakers. I got him a pair of like custom Nike sneakers that said on the back TC50. And when he got them, he was like, are you telling me we're going to be making this show for 50 seasons? And I'm like, no, man, it's you. It's your monogram. He was like, oh yeah, same thing. We'll all be in walkers. I have spit out food once on the show. And I do believe if I hadn't, I would have been sick. I have to say over 15 seasons and five spinoffs and countless dishes, I've only been sick once on the show. And that was in a quick fire challenge for Top Chef Masters, like season three or something. Curtis Stone and I were doing a quick fire challenge where they had to cook with lamb and squid. And it was no fault of the chefs, but the food was just kind of like sitting out afterwards longer than it needed to. And I didn't feel so great the next day. However, there was a lot of like lamb tartare, but that wasn't when I spit it out. Season six, we were in Las Vegas. We did a challenge in the desert. The chefs had to sleep overnight in the desert and then cook over open fire the next day in the sand. It was 112 degrees in the shade. And we were about to dig into a shrimp dish. I don't even know who made it. Tom took a bite, spit it out. And as I was taking a bite, said, don't eat that. Again, no fault of the chefs. It was just not like, you know, there was production situations there which were unavoidable. There was like sand in our food and it was so hot and... So I did not consume it. I put it in my napkin and we moved on. Only time ever, though. I have another Top Chef question, but I'm about to like jump out of my chair and eat someone's potato skin. Can you yeah. tell me? Yes, for sure. They... I'll tell you what you're eating. I'll, I'll, quick little mention of the menu. Every recipe you're eating is in my book. It just came out three days ago called Bringing It Home. And you're eating a few dishes from the brunch section and the drink section. The, the green drink you have in front of you is a drink I call salad in a glass, but it's actually really delicious. And I don't feel like it even tastes like it is as healthy as it actually is. But it's kale and pineapple, lime juice, and it's just a delicious start to the day. So I hope you enjoy it. And then the figs that you see in front of you in a bowl is roasted figs over yogurt with cardamom citrus honey. They were inspired by a trip I took to Paris many years ago to this little restaurant called Spring. And it was 
around this time of year, there were tons of figs in the market and the chef made us the simplest dessert of just roasted figs with cream. And I spent days thinking about it because it was so simple and so beautiful. And I came home, this is what the book is about. I came home from that trip and just started making roasted figs every day. And this is how I love to eat them. I make them at home for my family. You know, it takes 15 minutes to roast the figs and put them over yogurt, a little warm honey with some cardamom and lemon zest, and it's a simple, perfect treat. You're also getting my bumbleberry pancakes. Does anyone know what a bumbleberry is? Trick question. A bumbleberry, it's funny, you don't hear about them much in the States, but bumbleberry is just mixed berries. It's usually blackberries, raspberries, and blueberries together. It's a very Canadian term, I think, but in researching for the book, I discovered that the term was actually coined in like Wisconsin or something. So not far off, but in Canada, we eat bumbleberry pie in the summer all the time, and it's just a mixed berry pie, and I love it so much, and you never hear about it here. So I started making bumbleberry pancakes. They're a buckwheat pancake with three different berries that you kind of smash into the pancake, and I serve it with a little cinnamon whipped cream and warm maple syrup and some fresh berries on the side. And then the pièce de résistance, one of my favorite recipes in the whole book, is the crispy potato skins with baked eggs with cheese and avocado tomato salsa. The potato skin recipe came from a diner that I eat at in in Gloucester, Massachusetts every summer. My husband's been going to this tiny fishing village. Does everyone know the movie The Perfect Storm? George Clooney, very handsome young man. I've heard of him. Yes. He's kind of an indie actor. Just had twins, I believe. The Perfect Storm takes place in Gloucester, Massachusetts. It's a true story. Gloucester, Massachusetts is the oldest fishing village, oldest consecutive fishing port in America. It still has an extraordinary fishing culture and community. It's a real fishing town. And my husband's had a summer house there for over 40 years. And every summer, 25 family members gather and spend time together for a week on the beach. And I've been going with my husband's family for 16, 17 years at this point. And we always eat at this diner called Lee's Diner. And it's like that classic small town Main Street diner. It's only open fisherman hours from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. every day. And they have this ridiculous menu that's, you know, three pages long. And one of the things they serve is skins and eggs. I can't do it in the, you know, classic Boston accent. But the first time I was there, I thought, how genius is this? Potato skins. And we all eat potato hash, browns. We eat home fries. Obviously, potatoes and eggs are a classic combination. And what I love about it is they take the potato skin. You know, they make a skin. They take out the meat, season up the skin, put some cheese in the bottom, and then crack an egg. And the potato skin becomes the vessel to bake the egg. So it's easy for cleanup. And it's so delicious and, like, comforting and satisfying. And I make a little tomato avocado salsa for the top of it. Social media at Gail Simmons Eats and hashtag bringing it home. Thank you very much. Again, don't even pay the guy. I saw, I saw phones in the air getting Yes, please. All right. Moving on. We heard you had no other choice but to be in food with mom, yes. you know, and her background. Can you tell us growing up about like family holidays in the Simmons household? Sure. You know, we're Canadians, so... I grew up in Toronto, and we weren't big on Thanksgiving because Canadian Thanksgiving is sort of not the same thing. But uh, people celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving. It's always Columbus Day weekend. Um, But I didn't really grow up with Thanksgiving, so I have to say that moving to America 19 years ago, it's by far my favorite holiday, and I wish I'd celebrated it my whole life because I don't have a history of celebrating Thanksgiving. But we celebrated a lot of other things. I was uh, raised in a sort of traditional Jewish family, 
So Hanukkah and Passover were really big food holidays in my life. My mom's brisket is in the book. And the best thing about the brisket was always the leftovers for me. My mom's like traditional Jewish brisket that I have altered and she's not happy about. But I make a horseradish crust for it and I make a delicious Jew with horseradish and mustard mixed in. And there's always a lot of leftovers because we don't know how to cook for 10 people. We cook for 45 people anytime we do anything. And so... In the book, I take the leftover brisket and because we would always eat brisket on Hanukkah and go out for Chinese food on Christmas because that was the only, those were the only restaurants that were ever open. You know know what I'm talking about, Cappy. I thought, well, why not just make Chinese food out of this brisket? So in the book, I do the brisket and then I do a brisket fried rice with the leftovers. And that has become a holiday tradition in my house. That sounds incredible. Did you cook growing up? My mom was... She owns that kitchen. We had great food and she was an amazing cook. I remember cooking... I remember loving to cook. I remember being really little and my mom teaching me to make scrambled eggs and and make soup. What was the first thing you cooked? The first thing I ever cooked were scrambled eggs. My mom, I was probably five, six years old. My mom made me do them over a double boiler, I guess so I didn't burn myself. You know, water in a pan with another pan on top so that I would cook them really slowly. And I remember putting cinnamon and raisins in them, which is so disgusting now that I think about it, and forcing my parents to eat them and pretending I was running a restaurant. So they were good to me. Wait, cinnamon and raisins definitely sounds interesting. I think the double boiler thing is an old school, It like, is an old school technique. traditional way to cook eggs. You cook them really slowly. They actually get really fluffy that way. And so I've had a love of egg cooking my whole life for sure. But I don't remember really cooking in earnest until I got to college. Do you let your husband cook for you? Nope. <laughs> He's out of the kitchen. He's really good at a lot of things. <laughs> Um, that was the easiest he, no, answer he's, ever. He's an amazing sous chef. That's true. He's my muse. He has great inspiration. He loves to eat. He makes certain things. He's in charge of dressings and sauces. So he's actually my saucier. There's a, there's a sauce, a beautiful green sort of sauce vierge in my book that is capers and olives and tons of herbs and citrus and garlic that he came up with and that he makes all the time that we put over fish and we put over steak and that's in the book. So he also is the salad dressing master. He's really good at whisking and he's great at cleanup so those are his jobs in the kitchen and that's fine like he is happy because he he does not go hungry does your daughter watch you cook she does a ton and she loves to cook with me she's I mean she's almost four so every day is a bit of a minefield in terms of the kitchen with her but she uh, is a really great eater and she loves there's pictures in the book of us cooking together she loves making eggs with me she loves mixing everything we make smoothies every morning we make these pancakes all the time you know we always I'm not always home in the evenings for dinner with her, but I'm always there for breakfast. So we make breakfast a really big celebration in my house. So bringing it home with the cookbook and all these cooking at home, is your home kitchen organized? Yes, it is. Uh, There's actually, in in the book, we shot a lot of the kitchen shots in my own kitchen. So I moved to Brooklyn from Manhattan four years ago when I had my daughter. We didn't do a huge renovation on the house that we bought, but I ripped out the kitchen and designed it myself. So that was sort of exciting. My kitchen gets a lot of use. I entertain a lot. I cook it. You know, I developed every recipe for this book in that kitchen. I spend a lot of time in it. It's very open to the rest of my house. So there's always people in my kitchen and it is organized. My husband's also a bit of an obsessive compulsive organizer. So he's very strict about what I'm allowed to keep out on the counter or not he's my very wife may or similar. may not be I don't like know that. what you're talking about she's giving you like death stare eyes right now you know it's very neutral color scheme because my husband's also afraid of color so like my raspberry colored stand mixer was never allowed out he let me 
So we got a gift from friends once, a coffee maker, and it came in red. And he was like, nope, send it back, get a black one, and you can keep it on the counter. So we're minimalists in my kitchen. This is amazing. But very functional. I love learning new things about your husband. If you're entertaining, what are you wanting people to bring to your house? I'm big into delegation when I'm cooking. I think that the biggest mistake people make when they have people over because they get overwhelmed by the thought of entertaining is to try and tackle everything by yourself. And I I talk a lot about that in the book too, that, you know... We say this on Top Chef too, like know your team's strengths and weaknesses and ask for help. So I do that. I never say I'm going to cook a 16 course menu for 14 people on my own in a day. Like that's not happening. I don't need to put that pressure on myself. But I'm always happy for people to lend a hand in the kitchen. So I'm always assigning the wine. I assign dessert if I want to take on the other courses. I'm always happy to assign someone to you know, bring some appetizers, bring something fun that they can even buy and bring prepared. Because entertaining should be really about hanging out together. I'm a big advocate of making at least one course that can be totally made in advance the next the, the day before, and all you have to do is finish it. Same with desserts. That's what's so beautiful about desserts. Most of them don't need to be made a la minute unless it's like an ice cream sundae. So make, bake that pie or make those cookies the day before or the morning of and have them done out of the way. Same with, especially at this time of year, make a soup the day before. It's going to taste way better anyway, and all you have to do is warm it when your guests arrive. Simplify when you're entertaining and make sure to ask people to lend a hand. Or make that brisket the Yes, day or before. make the brisket two days before. You can even make it, as my mother-in-law does, a month before and she's already anxious for Hanukkah, like in October. So she make, literally makes her brisket now, slices it, freezes it in the braising liquid, and takes it out on like December 4th, and it's perfect. Organization is everything in the kitchen. Yeah. So if you're going to someone else's house, what do you bring? I try to bring a lot of things. I always bring them something to drink. And I also like bringing discoveries, you know, things that I'm obsessed with. So I'm... I, as I have said probably 15 times, I'm from Canada, so whenever I go home, I always bring back stuff duty-free, that like products that I love. Maple butter, maple whiskey, those are things that I'm always buying in bulk when I'm home and keeping in my cupboard so that I have them as gifts wherever I go. I try not to bring things that are going to be more work when people arrive, so like anything that needs to be immediately refrigerated or immediately you know, put into a vase. You can send the flowers the next day. But, you know, also something sweet is always a good thing to bring. You've eaten out plenty in your day. Enough. (laughs) Lots. Um, When you go out, I want to know the last overall restaurant experience that stopped you in your tracks. Huh. Okay, that's a good one. I got it. Well, last night I had a pretty special meal at Monteverde. They cooked a dinner for 70 people with recipes from my book. You know, Sarah Grunenberg is like a rock star and it was pretty perfect. You know, she turned my very home cook recipes into the most spectacular restaurant dishes. And so that was pretty awesome. She liked that girl's on fire. Thank God for Sarah Grunenberg. I'm very proud of her. But I would say stuff that wasn't related. In September, we had, you know... It's until I left New York three days ago, it was like 70 degrees, which is a little disconcerting, disconcerting, I should say, but we've had this amazing Indian summer. And in September, I went out for dinner in Brooklyn to a little restaurant that I'd been meaning to get to all year. She actually was a former contestant on Top Chef from our last season, a woman named Sylvia Baran, an Italian woman who was lovely on the show. She made it like halfway through the season and she was great. And I bump into her from time to time and she's always begging me to come to her restaurant. And it's actually not far from my house. I live in Cobble Hill and it's in Fort Greene. So it's like three neighborhoods over, you know, it's a 
two-mile walk or a five-minute drive. And I finally had the chance to get over there, and I could not believe the cooking that was coming out of her tiny kitchen. She's Italian from Italy. She's lived here for several years, but this is her first spot of her own. What's the name of the place? It's called Larina, L-A-R-I-N-A. And it has, first of all, the most beautiful little gorgeous back garden. And her pastas were exceptional. Her cocktail program is gorgeous. She has just the most simple, beautiful food that you want to eat at all hours of the day. And I have not stopped thinking about it. Awesome. That's a great answer. Yeah, thank you. I love hearing about a new place. Little discovery. Yeah. Speaking of restaurants, we're going to play a game. Uh Uh-oh. The game is called F, Mary, Kill. Oh. And if someone doesn't know what I'm talking about, turn to your neighbor and explain it to them. (laughs) We're all adults here. F, Mary, Kill, food edition. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. Fried chicken, burgers, Donuts. Oh, oh, this is a good one. I was scared you were going to be like Tom Colicchio, <laughs> Anthony Bourdain, and done. Eric Repair. Okay. Um, okay, fried chicken, burgers, donuts. Damn. I want to F all of them. <laughs> Not at the same time. Okay, hold on. This is a good one. I'm going to say marry the burger. I think that um, that's a long-term relationship. Burgers, you can have them a million different ways. They're always surprising and changing. They never run a style. They're in it for like the long game. You know what I mean? Yeah. The burger. Huh. I mean, I, I could do without a donut. I, I mean, I love a donut. Donuts are great things, but I'm going to say kill the donut. Um, I, it's hard between fried chicken. It's how do you choose? But I'm going to say of the three, I love a donut. But when it comes to something sweet, it's just not my first choice. It's like you feel bad that you're killing a donut. I do feel bad. I mean... It's okay. There are others... I would like to kill other things, but in, given the choices, you know what, donut? You can take a rest. You can take All a rest right. from the Instagram. You can take a rest from the, like, strange flavors that I don't think should exist. You know, the, like, the Cabernet, I don't know, sea salt and... Fried chicken donut. I don't know. Like, I think that it's okay. Got we, can, it. we can take a, you can just take Let's a rest. Do and then I would obviously, I would have the fried passionate chicken. love making with the fried chicken. Do you have a favorite fried chicken? I mean, I really love hot chicken, like Nashville hot chicken. I love Prince's and Hattie B's. That's like the chicken I'm into right now. Got it. Got it. All right. Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, beets. Oh. Huh. I know. <laughs> I'm going to... See, here's the thing about cauliflower. I love cauliflower cooked, but I hate cauliflower raw. I really dislike raw cauliflower. So I feel like as much as I love roasted cauliflower, I'm going to kill the cauliflower. Because in its raw state, like without makeup, sort of (laughs) not into the cauliflower. Like the I woke up like this cauliflower, I'm not into that cauliflower. But when it pretties Um, itself up with like salt and pepper and olive oil. It's got to work too hard. For me to love it. Uh, Brussels sprouts actually, you know, sort of similar, but, you know, a fried or like really roasted Brussels sprout, you can't eat it raw, so that doesn't count. Um, I would say I would, I mean, like a fried Brussels sprout with like fish sauce and some sort of spicy mayo drizzle, I would have sex with that Brussels sprout. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then the beet, I guess the beet I would marry. Like I do love a beet. 
I think it beets are really versatile vegetable. I love them raw, shredded in salads. I love them roasted. I love beets, you know, put into dips. I put them in my juices. Beets are sweet and earthy. They're, they're dynamic. That's also, you know, I'm in it for the long haul with the beets. They're I should so have beautiful. known that this game was going to last this long. I'm sorry. Because I have so many more. It's, it's but philosophical. Like, you know, you yeah, got to really think it through. It's, it's great. I told you I take it very yeah. seriously. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about the book, Why We're Here, Bringing It Home, Favorite Recipes from a Life of Adventurous Eating. But before we get into the cookbook, I want to know the one cookbook you can't live without, not your own. Oh, my your God. Own. Such a hard question. I have, I, have, I have a lot of cookbooks, and I rely on them. Like, I, you know, I use cookbooks in different ways. You sometimes, and I'm sure as we all do, sometimes you use them because they're pretty and you like them on your coffee table. Sometimes I use them as inspiration, flipping through to kind of think of ideas, and sometimes I need to, like, follow that recipe word for word. I hope you do all three of those with this book. But the one cookbook I can't live without, I would say, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's not probably what everyone would think, but it's a, it's a classic, more of a reference book. It's called Kitchen Sense by Mitchell Davis, who's actually the vice president of the James Beard Foundation. It's a book without photographs. It's not like a sexy looking cookbook, but it's a really inclusive how to cook book. And it's my go-to reference book for any kind of questions. Same with the line on the lines of On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. You know, it's like a, Mitchell's book is much less scientific, but they are like, when I can't figure out how to crack the code on anything science, or I just need a reference that I know will, will give me the answer and work every time. So cookbooks, like you have an idea, you write a book, you hand it in, and yeah, it's done. Yeah, it's like nothing. Yeah, it's like, it's like two a seconds. few days, right. Here we are. Yeah. Why? I did it. You did it. Congratulations. Thank Many you. years in the making. Why now? Um, thank you. Yes. yes. I, that's very Round nice. of applause. Um, I didn't mean to be like, cheer for me. I did it. Um, uh, it, it, it. It's like books are a very magical and confounding thing. This book took two years. I started working on this book in July 2015, writing the proposal, starting with the table of contents. Like, I can't even think of anything else that takes two years. Like, my husband likes to tell me that Avatar was made in a shorter time. (laughs) Star Wars Rogue One was made in a shorter time than it takes to write a cookbook. There's nothing else in our digital age that, you know, but this is a, a tangible, very personal piece of work. And I also didn't have anyone else, you know, it's a team of three or four. It's definitely not a team of 700, but still, it was a two-year project from start to finish, and uh, why now? Because for a long time, I didn't really have the confidence to write a book. It's a very crowded space. Everyone has a cookbook. I mean, from like Freddie Prince Jr., I mean, he, I'm sure he's an awesome cook. I have no idea. Who's the guy with the clock around his neck, the rapper? Flavor Flav. Flavor Flav has a cookbook. A friend bought it for me once, no joke, as a housewarming gift. You know, and, and, and Coolio, always. Coolio, Coolio has a cookbook. totally yeah. has a cookbook. Oh, yeah, cookbook. So, so, and I'm not that, there's cookbooks of all kinds, and they all have merit, but it's such a noisy, cluttered category that for years, my question always was like, why, why does anyone care? And yes, I can cook, but like, you know, no one really needs 100 recipes by Gail Simmons, because what makes them special, and why do they differ from anyone else's book? And I wrote a book in 2012 called Talking With My Mouthful, which was originally going to be a cookbook when I started planning it. But what happened was I started trying to figure out for that book, you know, what people want from me in terms of recipes. And I came to the conclusion at that time that 
what people actually think of me about is like, what would Gail, where would Gail Simmons go for dinner? Not what would Gail Simmons make for dinner? Um, because people didn't know me in that way as a cook. And, and so before I wrote a cookbook, I wanted to sort of tell the story of why I was a cook. And so talking with my mouthful is sort of about how popular culture and food are at such an extraordinary moment right now in America and how I have been along for the ride in the right time and right place and made a career out of things I never knew existed. And so that was that book. And after that book, I needed a break because that was also a really hard book to write. And a few years later, I worked up the energy and started looking at the notebooks of ideas I'd kept over the years and realized that I had amassed in my lifetime, but especially in the last 20 years of working in the food industry, a lot of, of notes and, you know, lessons learned that I had jotted down on random pieces of papers and menus I had kept from my travels. The great thing about what I do on Top Chef and with Food Wine Magazine is I get to travel a lot. You know, when I started Top Chef, I had never been to Chicago before. You know, I grew up in Canada. I didn't, I traveled a lot as a kid, but more overseas because my father's from South Africa and I didn't come to the States that much. So the last 20 years, I've had a really great opportunity to get to know this country an enormous amount and travel from coast to coast and everywhere in between, but do a lot of international travel too. And so finally, I realized that I had, I think, a hundred recipes that differentiated me, that, that all together explained my cooking philosophy. And I think that every recipe is really taken from inspiration on the road. Recipes I've gathered from places I've visited and chefs I've worked with, flavor combinations that I have been inspired by and really brought them home to my own kitchen and developed them for the home cook. So that's what this book became. That's great. I I mean, this book's it's amazing. I've seen like two or three cookbooks in my life. Yes. And uh, And been part of making several of them. Yeah. No, this is great. I know you've been working on this forever because I think we've been talking about it for a long time and I know you personally were in the kitchen testing these and writing every head note and I'm super excited to cook from it. Thank you. It's very personal. I mean that's the thing that also you worry about because is it too personal? Am I the only person who wants to make these recipes because they're also personal? But I, I think they're really relatable and I think they're all doable no matter what level you're at. There's a few recipes that are a little more challenging but that doesn't mean that if I took the hard part out of it. I did the work to figure out the easiest way to make them in a home kitchen and so there's nothing thing that should be intimidating. I, ju- I want it to be splattered on and used. Wait, so if I'm cooking one recipe, if I'm going home to cook one recipe from this book, I know there's more. I know yeah, they're yeah. all like your children, all that good stuff. But like, they're all right. what you'd be like, Cappy, you need to make this. Right. Huh. Oh my God, it is hard to choose. I would say there's two that are sort of like that became my heroes. Three, maybe. That became my heroes in the process of making them because they all had their own challenges in figuring them out, but I am really proud of them. One is the spaghetti pie that I'm eating on the cover. It is one of the most delicious, ridiculous recipes I've ever made. It's a spaghetti pie. I mean, what the hell is a spaghetti pie? It's spaghetti with tomatoes and spicy sausage and broccoli rabe and lots of cheese all mixed together and baked into a pie with this golden, delicious Parmesan crust and fresh sage, and it weighs 25 pounds. It feeds 37 people, but if you make it for a family of four, you'll just eat it for a week, and it's the best effing leftovers of all time. It's like the cold pizza situation. Yes. Like You're going to want it with a fried egg on top. You're going to want it two days later, and uh, I, I've made it 
a thousand times. It has about three pounds of cheese, but you divide it over 47 people, so it's totally fine. But I really, really love the recipe. And I love the Hokkien noodles. So they're both noodle dishes. That's a Singaporean dish that I discovered when Top Chef shot in our seventh season finale in Singapore. And this was a really challenging dish to make at home because it's a dish that is very involved when it's made out in the street. It's a, really a street food dish. And it's one of those dishes that looks really simple when you see the person at the stall making it, but then you realize the way he does it had 40 ingredients and half of it needs to be prepped in advance. But I really called it down and simplified it and it's a really satisfying bowl of like piping hot Asian noodles with pork belly and squid and shrimp. And it's squeezed with citrus all over it and it's bright and spicy and it's like exactly what I want to eat all the time. Let's stop there. I'm making them both. Those are good. If you had to go back to one place you've traveled to only for the food. Where am I going? Can I do like an American edition and an international edition? Yes. Only if you keep them short. I will, I promise. I'm sorry. Uh, New Orleans, in this, I think, is my favorite city to eat in in America. I mean, every city, Chicago obviously is at the top of the list, has extraordinary food. But New Orleans, I feel like, really has a culture different than anywhere else in this country and is a really special place to eat. It has such like interesting cultural roots and influences. And right now, there's just so many young chefs doing amazing things. And internationally, I would say Vietnam. It has a culture of eating unlike anything I've seen. And it is just sort of a magical place, fresh and bright and simple. And, you know, the the food you eat in the North is so totally different than the South. And because it has such a long history of colonization, a sad history of colonization, you know, from the Chinese to the Japanese to the French to the Americans, uh, for better or worse and now finally independence, it has, you know, just an amazing way of cooking. Best baguettes you'll ever have, best, you know, it's like everything influenced there. It's amazing. It's very interesting. I want to touch on social impact, giving back, because that's a big part of Beyond the Play podcast, and you give back in a huge way, I know, through City Harvest and Spoons Across America, and you're on boards, and you give your time and efforts and money and all that good stuff. Explain to us why you give where you give. Um, I get, you know, we're all pretty fortunate. This is a pretty beautiful place we find ourselves in and I eat really well and that's a very privileged thing to do and I don't mean to like, you know, put take out the violin, but America is an amazing country and I feel fortunate that I found myself in an interesting job that lets me eat extraordinary things and travel to amazing places. And I think as a food professional, it's sort of my obligation to spend time thinking not just about what I get to eat, but about what the rest of the country is eating. And the sad thing is there's a lot of people in this country that are, that just don't have access to great food. And that's not, and when I say great food, I just mean fresh ingredients. That's not because there isn't enough food in this country to go around. And ultimately I think major change can only happen at the policy level but there's a lot we can do to lend our voices and support not only the Congress people who are doing it the right way and advocating for more access in food deserts in this country, but also, you know, at the local grassroots level. So I try to give to organizations that focus on hunger issues in America, organizations like City Harvest in New York, which is um, a food rescue, one of the biggest food rescue, oldest food rescue organizations. I sit on their board and I do a lot of volunteer work with, with them. Common Threads based here in Chicago, which targets children in underserved neighborhoods and gives them cooking skills and access to fresh food. And I've been working with them since we shot our Chicago season here. 
in 2007. And Spoons Across America has similar goals. The Food Bank for New York City, uh, you know, organizations that uh, food policy action that that spend a lot of time getting people at the highest levels to listen to them and to help make sure that this country can feed its citizens because there's a lot of us and there's just no reason that people can't eat fresh food. Thank you. So that's, that's mostly where my No, that I, I love it. I mean, I could talk about that for another like I know. four hours, but we'll cut it there. I, I thank you. That's great. I think whether it is your voice, your time, your money, it all helps. It's hard to know, especially I think in this very moment in our country, where to put your time and your effort and your money first because there are so many, so many causes all worthy. I mean, in the last three months, between the hurricanes and the shootings and the, I mean, we're just in a scary moment. And how do you reach everyone? I'm overwhelmed by social media and I'm overwhelmed by knowing what to do first or who to help. And I think that, you know, we all can do just a little and, you know, wherever we feel the need to be, there's so many ways to lend your support or voice. You know, right now, I feel like in this meeting when I'm putting like a lot of effort into hurricane relief because without power and infrastructure, people aren't eating. So Puerto Rico and, you know, everywhere, Houston, we could go on and on. So it, it's hard to do, but I think that every, every, every bit of it counts. All right. We're going to play a speed round. I'm ready. A speed round. Okay, okay, okay. First Thanks, thing Mom. that comes to your mind. Okay, I promise. Two words or less. What did you have for dinner last night? I had the peri-peri chicken from my book, the lentil and grilled radicchio salad, and my upside-down banana cardamom cake for dessert at yeah. Monteverde. Name an ingredient you cannot stand to see on a menu. People are going to hate me. Black beans. It's irrational. I just got very sick from them once, and I... I have, we have a thing. I would, I mean, they're dead to me. (laughs) When was the last time you ate fast food? Does Shake Shack count? God, that's every chef's answer. I'm sorry, but it's like, you know. Yes, it counts. Okay, so like, I would say two weeks ago. (laughs) Uh, Name a smell in the kitchen you love. A smell? Yes. (sighs) Toasted coconut. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Tripe. Don't have to deal with it that often. But it's funky, man. What pisses you off in a kitchen? A mess. Disorganization. What makes you happy in a kitchen? Simmering pots and pans. What actress would you want to play Gail Simmons in a movie? Emma Stone. Awesome. We're going to close it out and bring it home. Yeah, bring it home. See what I did there? Wrap it up. I'm curious, what did you learn about yourself when you wrote this book? Any new discoveries? I, interestingly, like, I, al- I always cooked. Cooking was always how I did anything. That's how I approached every piece of work I've ever done. But I think that making this book reinvigorated, um, you know, and gave me more confidence that I could cook anything, that, you know, there's no recipe you can't tackle, and that, and that I, you know feel like it's where I belong more than anywhere else. All right. If you could write the headline to a cookbook review of Bringing It Home, what does it read? Um, Bringing It Home is a home run. Done. Thank you. All right. Check. Journalists, take note. Thank you guys so much. It really means a lot. We could, I think we have a little bit of time. If there's any questions in the audience, if anyone wants to come up, Joey here has a microphone. 
Is it on? Yes. Roving Don't microphone. Be shy. Um, I want to be respectful of everyone's time, so maybe just three questions. Yeah, so what? Great. How long does it take to film an entire season of Top Chef? And do you think you would ever do a Top Chef season like overseas somewhere? Like not just the final, but yeah, like yeah. a season. A, it takes six to eight weeks to shoot our season. The last several years, we shoot once a year, uh, May and June, generally. Changes a little bit year to year, but it's, it's eight weeks total, six weeks of full production. Uh, we shoot every single day, pretty much. Uh, we have, you know, maybe five or six dark days throughout those weeks because it's reality. You can't let people go home. They're sequestered, so we have to shoot very quickly. We shoot, every episode takes two to three days, and we just shoot it consecutively right through. We used to shoot finale, we used to stop down after the bulk of the season in one place, take three months off, and then shoot the finale several months later for 10 days. But the last two years, we've just shot right through, including the season that's about to air. We shot in Colorado in May and June, and we did the entire season there, including the finale, which was great because it was just like over in one shot. Part B of your question about international, we've been begging to go overseas. Tom and I have made extensive plans for a season in Tokyo and a season in Paris and Rome. No one's listening to us. Mostly because it is an exorbitantly expensive show to shoot because we shoot on the road. We have a crew of 150 people. And it's forget about the sort of visa situation of getting people to places. Um, It's not out of the realm of possibility, but... You know, we have to build a kitchen from scratch everywhere we go um, and house 150 people everywhere we go. And so we're working on it and we would love to do it. But, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated production. So fingers crossed. Rome 2018, everybody. <laughs> and while she's being handed the mic, reminding you there's books for sale in the back and Gail will be signing them after as well. Thank you. Hey. Cash Hi. and credit. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much for being um, here. Do you have any advice when traveling overseas of restaurant recommendation websites or people? Sure. Because we went to Paris this year and I felt like paralysis of everybody has a different recommendation. There's hundreds of reviews everywhere and I didn't feel like I could have eaten. It's overwhelming. Yes. It's overwhelming. Yes. I was disappointed in what I ate. Right. Okay. Well, I wish we had spoken before you left. Paris specifically... I have two specific recommendations for websites in Paris. The, the first is Paris by Mouth. I believe it's called an American from Brooklyn named Meg Zimbeck, who runs this incredibly comprehensive but very focused website about Paris restaurants, and it's in English. And you can sort by, because also the complicated thing about Paris restaurants is it's like, we're closed on Tuesdays. We're only open from 4 to 7.30. You know, you can't take, we only make reservations six days and five hours in advance. Like, you, you know, we're closed for 17,000 holidays. So Meg is amazing at really telling that down and she's an amazing guide. And then another woman um, who has a blog, I think it's called Paris in My Kitchen. Um, And she runs food tours and also has a really, I'll look it up. I can look up the exact name. So that's amazing. In general, for places I go, it is overwhelming. But these days it's actually easier. I definitely believe in trusted sources. There's a lot of blog noise out there too. You know, uh, obviously Food and Wine Magazine is pretty relatable and easy and they have most city guides and travel and leisure. And Eater these days is everywhere internationally and that's a pretty great resource and I trust it. I, um, which have, you know, it's like they really have been great at doing their like, you know, essential list and their hot list, um, which I think is really excellent. 
And then how else do I do it? I mean, I have, there's a, a writer who's a good friend, but whose published work I think is the best travel writing in America right now named Peter John Lindbergh. And he's been everywhere in the universe. So searching his articles, which are mostly in Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast Traveler. And he has the he has incredibly comprehensive work. Um, Saver, if you want to do deep dives, and their website too, I think is a really good resource. And if you don't have access to call someone like Gail and say, hey, where should I go in like Denver or Paris? Um, I usually ask a few people, and if I see crossover, if like That's three right. people recommended the same place, I'm like, all right, I got to go there. Yeah, no problem. Okay, last question. Make it a good one. No pressure. Does the birthday boy want to ask a question? <laughs> good question. So I'm just going to repeat this for yeah. podcast purposes so they could hear it. Someone asked, short of knives, what is your favorite kitchen tool? Um, I actually have a whole section in the book about this. Um, a set of my favorite kitchen tools, which is not inclusive of everything you need in your kitchen, but what I really lean on in the kitchen, I would say mini rubber spatulas to get into every nook and cranny of every jar and every jam use in making eggs, a flexible fish spatula, you know, a metal, thin, flexible fish spatula, which is not just for fish, but for anything that has a beautiful crust on the bottom that you want to preserve and be really careful with. Really good heavyweight sheet pans in half and quarter sizes. There's a brand, you can buy them on Amazon, they're like $15 a pan called Nordic Wear, and they make the best sheet pans. Do not get coated or non-stick sheet pans, like the stainless steel. A really good cast iron pan. Treat it well, season it. Don't let it soak in water because it'll rust, but you can buy them cheaply and they will be good friends to you. And all this stuff, there's a little store right here on Lake and Halstead called Northwest Cutlery. It's like a commercial type store, but they have all this stuff that like cooks and chefs buy for very reasonably priced. Yeah, great. And lots of, lots of big spoons. Thank you, Gail. I appreciate it. Thank you all for coming out. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. About social impact and why she gives where she gives. Quote, as a food professional, it's my obligation to spend time thinking not just about what I get to eat, but about what the rest of the country is eating. Thanks again to Gail Simmons. Find more on her at gailsimmons.com. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe, sharing insider tips on what makes this dish meaningful to them. Gail shares a recipe from her new cookbook, Bringing It Home. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast, and we have a Facebook page. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Big thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And a special thanks to my wife, Katie, who always lends a hand. And another. And another. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.